This podcast was recorded on 26 April at 9 a.m. Jakarta time. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. Enjoy the show. This is Reformasi Dispatch. I'm Jeff Hutton. And I am Kevin O'Rourke from Reformasi Weekly. Hey, Kevin. How are you, man? Guess what I did last week? Uh, kayaking. Uh... Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Kayaking. Yeah, sure. Skydiving, sure. Mm-hmm. But after that, I went to Tamam Mini. Oh, no way. I did. I went to Tamam Mini. <laughs> I wrote my very first story on, Tam- on Tamam Mini. I think every foreign correspondent here does at some point. Took me nine years, but I finally got there. Ah, congratulations. And you know what? It's actually not bad. Yeah, I know. I, uh, I got married there. So, yeah, it's a pretty good place. Wait, what? Uh, I got married at Tamam Mini. Yeah. At the mosque? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, I thought it was great. I thought that, um, I mean, it was, it's COVID and the, it was, I didn't quite understand why it was open. We went on the cable car. They had to actually start up the cable car for us. They turn on the engine. Boom, and uh, sorry, I don't know how that came across as a pod, but that's my attempt at making a diesel engine noise. Um, and um, yeah, look, it's a little faded. Uh, it's all for uh, it was a bit of reporting on um, the story of uh, Suharto's losing control of, uh, of the park. But yeah, I could see the potential, but um, I would say faded is probably the adjective. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's definitely well within the category of a corny, cheesy theme park. Uh, but, you know, it's from the 70s and for Indonesia, it really served a purpose and it was creative and unusual at the time. And it sort of has a it's a part of the Indonesia fabric for sure. Absolutely. Everyone has a memory. Every school kid has got has gone there or will go there at some point. It's um, definitely part of the fabric, but also um, was one of the main sources of propaganda, probably for the Suharto clan. I mean, their names are everywhere, right? Oh, yeah. Although there's um, <clears throat> there's actually uh, other uh, parts like the Lubang Buaya monument near Halim Air Base, which are really heavy duty propaganda. Whereas Taman Mini is more about nation building and uh, celebrating diversity. But yeah, of course, they, they aggrandize the Sahartos at the same time, for sure. I can't get over the scale. It's something like 150 hectares and it's in East Jakarta. I could see how it's worth 200 trillion rupiah. 20 trillion, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, well... Sorry, sorry, 200, 20. 20 trillion, yeah, or like, you know, well over a billion dollars in terms of the property value. Right. Well, let's uh, get going because we have quite a lot to talk about. Um, India versus Indonesia, the cautionary tale when it comes to COVID infections. We have an ASEAN meeting over the weekend. We have our bread and butter, corruption. We have bribes and kickbacks. Later on the pod, Kevin's going to be talking with Angus McIntosh. He's the founder of Cross ASEAN Research. I think Kevin's going to ask him some questions on uh, Gojek, Tokopedia, FinTech, and um, probably going to get you to talk about some supply chains too. But first, I'm got to take it down a notch here. Um, the sub of, over the weekend, the Indonesian military said it found the KR. Over the weekend, the Indonesian military said it found the KRI Nangara. Um, it's an 850 meters uh, and broken in three pieces all 53 crew members are dead. Obviously, we don't know the cause of this, and this pod is going to air on Wednesday. But I wondered if it was an opportunity to talk about 
the conditions in the military. My understanding is uh, there are five submarines. They are, I don't know what their condition of readiness or seaworthiness was, but the Indonesian military has been an organization that was by times of government within a government, possibly a little bit of rent sinking in there, and aimed mainly at other Indonesians. It was more inward looking than outward looking. Do you think that this is, this might parlay into an opportunity for a rethink about the readiness of the Indonesian military at a time when uh, China is being expansionist? Uh, yeah, I think so. That's a good point. I mean, yeah, you get there's two things happening at once. On the one hand, there's uh, chronic or incessant incursions territorially by the Chinese vessels, uh, especially in the Natuna Sea. Uh, and then meanwhile, there actually has been a, a concerted effort to build up the Navy, including the submarine fleet. And um, in fact, uh, uh, Indonesia has three newly built submarines uh, that are Korean ships, basically, uh, two built in Korea, but the third one, Indonesia, built domestically at the PAL shipyard in Surabaya. Uh, so now this uh, sinking of, of one of the two older subs in the fleet is a real shocker. And um, yeah, I think should be uh, an alarm that military readiness is pretty important. Yeah, that sub is 44 years old. I've come from a country that is not a big military spender, Canada. I think we've got I think we've got four subs and they're equally old or they're cast offs I think from the Brits. This one was refitted in 2012, but it was involved in in uh, some torpedo exercises off the north coast of Bali. And um yeah, it was traveling it was basically uh moving from Surabaya over to Bali um was intended to take part in an exercise that the military chief was going to review on 22 April. Then it went down in the early morning hours off the north coast of Bali on 21 April after having submerged, and so it lost contact. So, yeah, it's hard to tell exactly what happened there, um, some sort of catastrophic failure. Uh, but what happened during the ordinary course of running submerged or diving, um, I don't think it was firing any weapons at that hour in that location, but yeah, anyway, it's it's a little bit of a mystery, but yeah, it, it underwent the refit in 2012 in Korea, but I think that was mostly for like its uh, weapon systems and guidance and electronics, whereas, you know, the, the vessel itself was, uh, yeah, yeah, probably pretty old and creaky, actually, uh, having been built in 1979. Does Prabowo bear any responsibility for this? Would there be any political blowback, do you think? Uh, no, there's usually not very strong account accountability uh, along those lines. So I would tend to uh, doubt it, actually. He reacted right away by calling for uh, more spending on modernization, which you know, is it's understandable, um, but uh, a little bit premature and arguably insensitive to, to make that call at that time. Uh, especially because there's uh, really clearly a need for an investigation to find out exactly uh, or try to find out better what actually happened. Right, right. I suppose the only silver lining in this was the uh, international effort to find them. There was there was quite a response. Yeah, that's right. There were Singaporeans, Malaysians, and uh, Americans and Australians all involved. Yeah. Well, we watch this space. Uh, it's really quite distressing seeing the images. Hey, podcast listeners, if you made it this far, then why not subscribe? 
and rate us. It helps. And for a free trial of the Reformasi Weekly Newsletter, go to reformasi.info. Indonesia, COVID rates, uh, COVID infection rates are plateauing, but in India, they are just, they're stratospheric. India, the cautionary tale for Indonesia, is it just a matter of time? That, that, that's what I'm thinking here. Is that, wow, I, 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 thought, I thought we were dodging a bullet here. And I explained, I explained to my parents who were expecting, you know, not unusually, not, not unreasonably, that um, things would be a lot worse than they have been in Indonesia. But I said, you know, people wear masks. Mo- much of life transpires outside. There are people in Jakarta, at least in some parts of my part of Jakarta, people are taking it seriously. I think that things could have been a lot worse. But then India comes along and has infections of 300 and some odd thousand per day. Is that uh, uh, there but for the grace of God? You know, if, are, are they the, the cautionary tale? Is that what could be in store? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot in common for sure. Uh, one is uh, low vaccination rates, uh, even though both countries have actually done pretty well in terms of rolling out vaccines. There's still it's just a tiny fraction of the total adult population uh, is fully vaccinated. So uh, in that sense, they're similar. Uh, then also uh, everyone around the world is vulnerable to the new variants, of course. Uh, and then another similarity is that Indonesia has Eid al-Fitri coming up uh, next month. And uh, India had a major religious festival on the Ganges involving, I think, six million people over the course of a week. And so, you know, that that could be something of a similarity. But there are differences because uh, the uh, the Modi government in India, I think, has been very remiss in, in not upholding protocols well and allowing lots of different types of mass gatherings, not only that one on the Ganges, but also political campaign rallies have been happening all over India uh, and they've been quite large. So there was also a, a major uh, a protest movement uh, against the agricultural policies in India, I know. So there's been a lot of uh, super spreader events in India, I think. And that's something that Indonesia, I think, has managed to pretty much avoid. Um, there's been uh, pretty tight adherence to, to protocols. It's really just the concern about the upcoming Eid al-Fitri and the, the Mudik exercise uh, or the, the upcoming uh, Mudik. Right, right. The exodus, right. We're going to leave that in because I think it's kind of funny how you're stumbling over your words. Exodus. No, no. Exodus. <laughs> Leave that in. No, no. Um, but my sense is that people are taking it very seriously. People, whenever I talk to people about, you know, are you going to mudik this year? No, 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 you're not allowed. Oh, no, you can't. Oh, because of COVID. Oh, no. It, it seems to have seeped into people's, um, I don't know if that's, if that's, that, that's my own survey, but I think it seeped into a level of consciousness. Whereas in India, I think that the Modi government was always keen to get past it, where Widodo, for all of his fault, does seem more exercise on the, he, he wants to get the vaccines going and they're, they are taking it seriously. Hmm. Yeah, you know, maybe, maybe also the collective consciousness was affected by the scare in Indonesia in January when the hospitals filled right up in Jakarta. That definitely caused massive distress and anxiety, and, and that maybe has changed uh, people's outlooks uh, in a lot of cases, whereas maybe other countries that, that haven't yet experienced that type of a scare where the hospitals are, uh, fill right up um, are more you know, complacent. You, and you are seeing evidence of, um, of vaccine. Uh, I think all the domestic reporters here have been vaccinated. The shopping malls, there are 
there are vaccination uh, offices. There are big signs set up in the place where I go to the gym. It's there is a sense of some progress, or whether it's enough to head off the arrival of the of the variants is another question. And they are here, aren't they? Yeah. So the, the COVID nineteen uh, spokesperson uh, Wiku uh, said last week that. Uh, variants have been found in all provinces, which was uh, a little bit surprising. I mean, uh, I expected that uh, the variants were pretty widespread in Indonesia, but um, yeah, it was uh, something to, quite startling to hear that they have actually been in all provinces, especially given that there's been very it, it, there's a very low capacity for actually doing the genome sequencing. You're not an epidemiologist, but uh, you're a pretty smart guy. Um, have you? seen any any research on just how or just how contagious or just how deadly these variants are the brazilian ones or the 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 south african ones or just how serious is the threat yeah uh the other there's the the eek variant uh, which i think is the uh e84k uh, and that's that that's the one that can evade uh, vaccines uh, in a lot of cases so um, that's the one that's probably going to require a new iteration of the uh, mRNA vaccines of Moderna or Pfizer in order to properly uh, guard against uh, that variant. Uh, the other variants, it uh, seems like they are more transmissible, but not necessarily more deadly. And Indonesia is using the Sinovac vaccine. How effective is that? Is there any research? Anyone trying to find out? Right. Yeah, there is a bit more uh, information available from a study in Chile two weeks ago, and it showed that the first dose of Coronavac does uh, almost nothing for you. And then after you get the second dose, then you're up to 50 or 60 percent efficacy. So yeah, certainly worth having and uh, far better than nothing. Uh, and that, that's, that's for symptomatic infections, I think. The good thing is, though, it's the efficacy increases for older people and it also increases with regard to hospitalizations and death. So that's, that's 50% in that you do not become infected. So that doesn't include the, the percentage of people who do get infected but don't develop serious symptoms, frankly, don't die. Well, this is the uh, it might it might yeah I'm not clear on on the parameters in the Chile case and this is where the different uh, vaccine trials vary because it, it kind of depends on what you categorize as an infection does it have to be symptomatic and noticeable or something that only shows up in a test result? Here's a question that's just come to me probably stupid but I'm going to ask it anyway. Yeah, sure, why not? If you get a Sinovac vaccine, like I'm probably going to get. And later on, you get a chance to say uh, Moderna or Johnson Johnson. Can you upgrade? Can you double up? How does that work? I think so. I think I think so. Yeah, I don't think there's uh, any complications between uh, you know taking two different vaccines, especially if they're spaced uh, far enough apart. But uh, not a doctor. Not a doctor. <laughs> not a doctor. <laughs> Moving on to the ASEAN meeting and. This was a summit convened to talk about Myanmar, and it wasn't Jokowi's idea, it was the ASEAN Secretariat idea, but Jokowi wanted it convened in Jakarta because that's where the Secretariat is housed. Um, and interesting, who did not show Thailand and neither did the Philippines. What do you think that says? 
Yeah, uh, a lot. Uh, well, you know, I think with the Philippines, uh, plenty of people that understand that you know, the Philippines is a democratic country and, and you know, the Philippines as a country would want to see Myanmar be democratic. I think I think that's a, a given. And the fact that Duterte's did not go to Jakarta reflects conditions in the Philippines and it reflects Duterte himself, who's uh, coming to the end of his term. And then the Philippines is uh, the ASEAN country most the most distant from Myanmar. So, so that, that's, I think, um, not so significant. But uh, the uh, summit was very significant in, in showing that uh, the uh, Thai Prime Minister Prayuta decided to be absent. And that, I think, will tend to shift international focus on Thailand, uh, basically proving that uh, Thailand is the uh, cog here that is reluctant to be constructive and therefore provides a basis for you know, other members of the international community to focus on Thailand and try to elicit some cooperation from Thailand because that country really is pretty key uh, as, as the one bordering Myanmar and the one that has lots of relationships with members of the junta. So Prayut's absence at the meeting, does that indicate that he didn't think it was very important or it was a sort of a show of solidarity with with the junta in in Myanmar or what, what what was he trying to accomplish with that by sending a junior well yeah arguably it uh, backfired because uh, the turnout among the other ASEAN heads of state pretty good it was really just uh, the Philippines Thailand and Laos that remained absent so uh, maybe he at the time that he made his decision was hoping that Others in ASEAN would also uh, refrain from attending. But the Thai foreign ministry spokesperson put out a statement that emphasized the need for ASEAN to use the summit to maintain its unity, which was weird because <laughs> a lot of other priorities out there right now besides unity. So that kind of hints that the Thailand would very much be opposed to any initiative, which has not even arisen yet, but it could potentially arise to oust Myanmar from ASEAN. Um, so it basically put Thailand on, on the wrong side of the fence on this issue and, and sort of uh, underscored their uh, affiliation with Myanmar military. I would have thought the Thais would have been very eager to quell the fighting or do whatever it takes because they're on their way to a full-blown civil war. And, and, all, and, and the floods of refugees and drugs and instability that that brings. That's right. Yeah, the refugees are already happening. So it's uh, yeah, pretty short-sighted, I think. Yeah, but uh, yeah, th these are leaders in Thailand who really don't have a lot of appreciation for democratic norms themselves. So, Joko, we developing some uh, foreign policy chops. Is he becoming an uh, elder statesman and uh, into his uh, second term here? Yeah, that's sort of a corollary here, which is uh, encouraging because he uh, was uh, quite a, an early mover in the initiation of the summit, which is quite an unprecedented summit, actually, because ASEAN is usually so conservative about uh, any sort of semblance of interference in the internal affairs of any member state. Uh, so that's uh, that was encouraging to see because it, it contrasts with how he's uh, handled himself in the past, such as uh, you know, refraining from attending G7 summits and things like that. Plus, not only that, but last week he also took part in Joe Biden's climate conference, which had 40 heads of state. So Widodo was uh, one of those 40, which is uh, pretty good. Yeah, he, he really doesn't like them. He does not see a point. Unless there are deals to be made, he doesn't get it. I don't think he's even been to a, to the UN, to those uh, leader summits in September. I don't think he's even done that. 
Right. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe the uh, tendency now for some of these events to take place virtually is a positive thing because uh, it's actually maybe potentially better to you know, enable him to get involved. Yep. He doesn't have to get on the 737 VIP conversion. Yeah. Doesn't know. doesn't have to worry about the small talk on the uh, sidelines. He's not a great small talker. And I mean, his, and his English isn't that great. Anyway, it just doesn't, you know, just doesn't see the point. He's got work to do. Moving on to corruption. We got, uh, we've got bribery in, what is this? That's in North Sumatra. And we've got uh, kickbacks. And the, <laughs> this is pretty sleazy. Let's, let's start with this first. This, the former social affairs minister, Giuliani Batubari, alleged, allegedly took kickbacks from those packets, those um, sambaco that was hand, handed out. Um, to the poor, these are rice and oil, and I think there's a, a there, there's some tempeh in there too. It's a, a eight or nine items that were given to poor households. He's alleged to have taken kickbacks on this to the tune of oh help me out. I think it's three billion rupiah. Uh, right. Yeah. So yeah, in total thirty three billion, but he had admitted to three billion and claims that the uh, other. 30 billion he had no idea what they're talking about <laughs> I'm, so i mean what, what's the likelihood that he's going to be convicted and i mean and what was to say about the overall cleanliness of the cabinet yeah uh it's incredible how this uh case uh, could not be more odious i mean this is a uh, PDI Perjuangan representative in the cabinet uh, entrusted with the role of social affairs, clearly organizing and arranging a complex scheme to him off of emergency food aid packets for the poor during a pandemic. <laughs> and, and then you look at the poll data and uh, the, the polling data shows that it, it hasn't affected PDIP whatsoever. Um, which either means that people are not really following the headlines or else they are following the headlines and they expected this to happen from the outset. So it doesn't change their perspective when the news comes out. <laughs> but either way, it's, uh, it's all very sordid. And so now what's happening is that he's claiming his innocence for the bulk of the charges in terms of monetary value. And that you know, strikes me as a little bit politically risky uh, for the party because it's uh, only going to uh, worsen his notoriety uh, if the KPK does indeed manage to, to come through with enough compelling evidence to show that you know, that full amount of $33 billion actually did go to him. Just odious. And vice, well, one of the four vice speakers of parliament, Aziz Hamsudin, he's alleged to have conspired in bribing a police officer that had been seconded to the KPK for the purposes of helping end an investigation into a, uh, a mayor of an obscure town there. Um, walk us through that. Right. Well, yeah, that, that's a, that's, you got it exactly right there. There's a lot of kind of moving parts that make it complicated. Uh, this is a really small town, 150,000 people in North Sumatra, Tanjung Balai. So, there's a mayor there, and he faced allegations of having sold appointments, uh, which is a, a type of corruption case that has cropped up numerous times to date. Uh, and so this went under the radar because it's such a small town and such a small you know, value to this uh, alleged corruption. However, suddenly there's a revelation this past week from the KPK that one of its personnel met with this 
mayor who's a suspect, Siarial, and that uh, KPK personnel is uh, Stepanos, uh, and he's uh, actually a police officer who's seconded from the police to the KPK. And the one who facilitated the meeting, which took place uh, at his house in Jakarta, was Aziz Samsudin, who's really probably the number three figure in Golkar. And, and I don't think he's not really an ally of the Golkar chair. He's somebody who's been plagued with uh, corruption scandals for a decade. And so uh, that made it suddenly a very big affair. So he, the allegation is that uh, Aziz Samsudin arranged this meeting between the suspect and the prosecutor. And then uh, immediately after the meeting, the prosecutor told the suspect to talk to the prosecutor's lawyer. So, you know, whenever you have a corruption prosecutor who has a lawyer, that's I guess that's a telltale right there. And so so then the uh, the suspect and the lawyer agreed on a fee of one point three billion rupiah, um, which was paid to the to the lawyer uh, and to a, a relative or friend of Stepanos in, over 59 transactions, 59 bank transfers. And then the case went away. So that's that's how the mayor got off the hook. Why would Siam Sudin be interested in a bribery in a case against a mayor in North Sumatra of some town of 100, 150,000 people? That's that's nothing in Indonesia. Yeah. So in this case, yeah, somebody like Aziz Samsudin is kind of stooping to help out somebody who's a few rungs lower down or, or really yeah, really just one rung lower down, really, because uh, uh, Sam Sudin's a national figure, but he's elected from North Sumatra. That's his uh, constituency. And uh, this mayor is from his party. So it was obviously one of his political allies and supporters uh, that he was uh, stooping to help out. So what do you think this says about the KPK? In this one case, the police seconded to the KPK was, was being bribed, but got caught out. And it was also KPK that got Batubara, the um, former social affairs minister. So are they still a legitimate going concern or the wor- and the worries that they would be undermined by um, police meddling? Is, are, are, they, are they being realized or were they overblown? Yeah, still remains to be seen. Uh, basically, the KPK is all over the map right now. So you've got these... Uh, horrific revelations about KPK personnel taking bribes to make cases go away, which is something that had never really surfaced uh, before, if it ever really even happened. But uh, on the other hand, it's the KPK itself that uh, uncovered this uh, conduct by Stepanos. Do they retain their elevated, they were almost like a a mythical sort of status. There there was like guardians of, of the republic, almost. Do, do they retain their standing in the, in the public eye? Do you think? Uh, no, it has suffered uh, for sure, especially just because uh, Fili Bahuri himself, the chair of the KPK, is still an active three-star police general. So his status in and of itself is a problem. Plus, he came to the position without having a good record, so he did not bring a lot of credibility to the post. And then he himself has suffered an ethics investigation for when he rented a charter plane for personal business uh, last year. Yeah, a lipo plane that he took to see family in a remote part of Sumatra. So yeah, the KPK is, is still troubled, but um, and, and, and that actually may be the explanation for why they are actually moving to uh, apprehend fugitives and uh, expose uh, two ministers uh, last December, including uh, Batubara, and now this case with Stepanos. So uh, there's different elements within the KPK and, and cross currents, uh, but one of the more fundamental 
dynamics that's happened is that the personnel of the KPK have uh, converted over to civil servants now. So one of the main factors that had always explained the more professional performance of the commission in the past was the fact that uh, everybody who worked there was exempt from the normal rules that govern the civil service. And that was something that the original KPK members insisted upon in order to ensure the KPK's independence and professionalism because civil servants are so easily manipulated and um, uh, coerced by superiors uh, in, in throughout the state apparatus. Uh, now, you know, one of the changes in 2019 that we Dodo agreed to was to convert the KPK um, staff back to or, or, or you know, to civil service status. And so now they adversely affects their incentive structures, basically. Right. Was there a wholesale exodus when, when they were brought under uh, police supervision and uh, converted into civil servants? Or I'm, I'm just wondering if, uh, you know, the, the believers are still there. I think they. I think it's. I think it's a gradual uh, process. So uh, Novel Basuedan is the star investigator, and he's still active. Yeah, he himself actually comes from a police background, so I guess he's a bad example. But you know, he's 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 the famous accomplished uh, investigator. Um, but basically, who was who was attacked with with acid? Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, partially blinded. But there's more and more. Um, Active police personnel, I think, uh, taking key positions within the KPK beneath the the, the five uh, commissioners that run the KPK. So, although it's uh, it, it's still fulfilling its main function, it, we could expect it to deteriorate over time as as people go and new bloods brought in. Yeah, I think so. I'm afraid so. Yeah, because uh, that's that's sort of a fundamental change, that uh, conversion of uh, personnel status. And that's something that's going to really weigh on the commission for the long term, regardless of uh, what happens in terms of the higher level personnel changes. Okay. well, coming up, interview with Angus McIntosh. He's the founder of Cross Asian Research. Yeah, he's an equity markets uh, specialist with a lot of experience uh, based in Bali. So we're going to talk about what uh, the... uh, conditions and status of some of Indonesia's major listed companies. Tell us about the economy and the outlook. Gojek, Tokopedia, FinTech, and banks. Great. Okay. Okay, uh, and here we are with uh, Angus McIntosh from Cross ASEAN Research. Uh, Angus, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? You do um, independent equity research, mainly on Indonesia and also ASEAN markets. Uh, is that right? Uh, yes, Kevin. Yeah, well, thank you very much for, for having me on to the, the podcast. Um, no, I, I um, run a, an independent research company called Cross ASEAN Research. Um, we focus on Indonesia predominantly, but I also look at selective uh, ideas and themes, you know, throughout Southeast Asia and, you know, in sectors where we think we can add value. Uh, but the main focus is is uh, is on Indonesia, uh, and we're, we're, the audience we normally are catering for would be institutional investors. So we're not writing for for um, you know for private investors, for purely for institutions, you know, including you know hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds, mutual funds, and so on. Uh, um, not just in Asia, but also in in Europe and the US. So you know that that's that's our, our kind of audience. And my experience is is basically twenty five years or more now uh, covering covering Asia in some form or fashion. 
I was based in Jakarta from uh, from 2012 for four years, uh, um, working for for Bank of America Merrill Lynch, and and I, I left the, the investment banking industry and and uh, I went into independent research, which has uh, you know been a very satisfying move to be honest. Yeah, great, and you do it from Bali, so it makes it even better, right? And I'm very lucky I can uh, I can do it from virtually anywhere. But being based in Bali makes a lot of sense because I can travel from here normally. Uh, I can travel from here um, you know, to Jakarta very easily, and uh, you know to other you know regional uh, markets such as Thailand and Singapore and so on. All right. Well, yeah. What I wanted to do today was kind of give podcast listeners a view of Indonesia's economy and the recovery prospects and some other economic trends uh, from the perspective of the capital markets. And so that's why I thought of you to help us with that. So I guess because uh, you and your team are uh, literally cross ASEAN, why don't we uh, start with a comparative perspective? Um, and since we're in the pandemic. How would you say the uh, Indonesia Stock Exchange has fared compared to the regional neighbors in terms of being hit by the pandemic? Well, I'd say, I mean, Indonesia has, has fared relatively well. Um, I mean, from a sort of a, a big picture perspective, you know, looking across the region, uh, you know, the impact of COVID on Indonesia, you know, it's been, it's been quite heavy, but it, nothing like, uh, you know, the, the impact on the economy as you've seen uh, in countries like Thailand, which is you know very reliant on on uh, on tourism and also things like medical tourism, uh, but that that filters right down to the to the underlying economy. So Thailand Thailand's economy is fifteen to twenty percent reliant on uh, you know overseas visitors uh, um, as a portion of GDP. So it's been much harder hit. Whereas Indonesia is a very small amount. Obviously Bali has been very badly hit, hit by it. Maybe talk about that later. But Indonesia is more being hit by the sort of global slowdown and you know some some supply chain issues and so on. But most of those that we've kind of got through, uh, I mean, obviously, year on year, first time Indonesia's seen any sort of quarterly declines in GDP since the Asian crisis. So, you know, it's a pretty serious impact on the underlying economy. But we're now sort of uh, what the government's done is put in place a, a very strong and very significant uh, stimulus program by, you know, effectively, you know, allowing a, a bigger capital account deficit to allow them to, to, to pump prime the economy and, and provide stimulus. And they put through various other policies to stimulate uh, different sectors, you know, allowed restructuring for, in the banking sector and given the banks the opportunity to, to restructure large amounts of loans uh, without actually having to take any provisions. So that's given them a year and they've actually extended that for another year. So we're going out to March 22. Um, so that, that gives, uh, you know, the bank a big breathing space. And, uh, you know, what's happened actually is that, is that the banks have built up you know, large amounts of liquidity, having not been lending money and taking in, uh, um, you know, a lot of deposits. Um, so there's, they've got a lot of capacity to to lend, which is very positive for the outlook for the economy, you know, going into this year and next year. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say, you know, no one's going for hell for leather on it. But, you know, they're, they're, they're certainly in a position where, you know, when the time is right, they can start to extend loans to, to uh, new customers and, and, uh, and take those opportunities as they come. Um, I think at the moment, there's been a big focus on their existing corporate customers, whereas they've been a bit sort of cautious on pushing out loans to, to consumer lending and mortgages and so on. Yes, yeah, so the, Indonesia's economy has, has um, you know, seen a, seen a downturn, but, you know, but uh, held up relatively well through, I think, you know, quite sensible government policies. And, and it's actually, you know, pushed forward uh, um, some other policies, which I think will have much more marked long-term effect, with, uh, such as the passage of the omnibus law, which covers, uh, you know, a thousand different, different laws. But, but effectively, I mean, the main focus is on, on labor and, and uh, uh, on, on, on allowing it or make it easier for, for foreign investment to come in by effectively simplifying the licensing process, uh, which, 
takes away many layers of potential uh, one corruption, but you know to, just the time taken to, to get operations going. Um, and I think you know labor laws in Indonesia, you know, ha- have been a barrier for certain industries because it's very difficult to lay lay uh, long permanent workers off without paying, you know, having to pay about two years in, in in compensation for laying someone off. So. That that's now become a simpler process, and uh, you know that that hopefully will stimulate you know more foreign direct investment. Um, and I think that that you can combine that uh, you know with um, you know the the government's efforts to to, to build new infrastructure. Um, so a lot of projects are being kind of it slowed a bit last year, but there's a, there's a, it's a very significant pump priming going on uh, and early tenders for new infrastructure projects this year. Um, so we're expecting, for example, to see the the completion of the, the uh, LRT, the light railway transit, by the autumn this year. Uh, which is, you know, extends out beyond, you know, integrated Jakarta from central Jakarta. You've seen the completion not that long ago of the, the Trans-Java Highway, which I think will, will be very positive for extending investment, you know, outside uh, Greater Jakarta uh, into, you know, into, into Surabaya and Samarang. And there are some quite big industrial estates in, in those to those other places which are which are seeing interest from uh, um, Chinese companies for example um, in, in, in Surabaya you're seeing you know some new smelters being built uh, which is kind of value added for the for the nickel industry and uh, you know that that you know, longer di- longer term you know may pave the way for Indonesia to become a producer of uh, electric batteries for electric vehicles uh, which you know will be very positive potentially long term for the auto industry not just domestically but more for, from an export perspective so there are lots of things going on which which are sort of paving the way for for, for, for a, a strong recovery you know consumer spending has been relatively weak but one you know, huge growth area has been uh, um, e-commerce. Um, so as a result of everyone sitting at home, you know, rather than that, they're not able to go out to the mall, which is, a, you know, obviously a very popular pastime for Indonesians. Um, but, you know, so they're no longer able to go out there. Also, they've, they've moved online. And, and so as a result, you've seen, you know, very strong growth in in uh, um, in retail spending online and, and uh, you know, you know, much more use of deliveries and, uh, you know, food deliveries. And, you know, so this has kind of saved, a lot of small businesses and, and uh, you know, it's actually also helped to, to kind of uh, ex- expand the coverage of, of online uh, internet as a tool to build a, a, a micro and, and, and small medium uh, um, size enterprises. Um, so that I think is a, is, is a very positive. And, and actually, I think the other thing is it's going to attract, you know, it already is, it has attracted large amounts of capital um, to Indonesia, investing in, in those uh, um, startups. I mean, you've got obviously got unicorns, you know, like uh, Gojek, which uh, is uh, you know ride hailing and, and food delivery at the moment, uh, which is merging with Tokopedia, which is one of the biggest e-commerce players in Indonesia. Uh, you've got other players such as, as Shopee, uh, which is owned by C Limited, uh, and uh, C Limited now, just as a, as a reference, is is the largest market. It's gigantic. It's a, it's about 125 billion uh, US dollars in terms of market cap, and it's the biggest market cap uh, company uh, uh, in Southeast Asia. Um, so it's far bigger than companies like BCA and DBS in Singapore, uh, BCA being you know one of the largest banks in Indonesia. Um, so that's a kind of reflection of of the focus you know on that e-commerce sector uh, and and all these these uh, um, so-called unicorns for more than a, a billion dollars in, in terms of value. A lot they're all looking to to, to list uh, in uh, uh, potentially in Jakarta, but also in the US, uh, where you have a, a very strong kind of tech backdrop to the investor base uh, so they can fetch much higher valuations uh, which gives them you know potentially more currency to continue to promote and grow their businesses because they're all they're all basically losing money <laughs> none of them are really expected to break even until uh, 2023 
in, as a kind of driver, you know, e-commerce space and that digital economy space is, is driving the, the overall economy. And it's not just in consumer, it's also in banking. All the banks are seeing huge uh, increases in the use of mobile banking, for example. Um, and it's overtaken ATMs. So, you know, you're seeing gone are the days where you see these long queues of people at lunchtime, you know, doing all their banking business on the ATM. They're now sitting on their Chinese smartphone uh, doing their banking business remotely. Uh, and it's, you know, much quicker and it's much cheaper. And it's a far more cost efficient way for the banks uh, as well um, for them to do business. Yeah, I noticed, um, I noticed in one of your recent reports, you even mentioned that uh, Mitra Adi Prakasa gets 10% of its revenue now from e-commerce. So this is MAP, Map, which is the, uh, the the quintessential shopping mall play, right? It's it's a brick and mortar collection of stores and um, kiosks and Starbucks chains, right? Exactly. So, yeah, no, so, so Mitra Adi Prakasa, or, or, or MAPI as it's known, uh, basically is, is is the largest kind of retail player in Indonesia. They have 150 brands. So, you know, they cover everything from, from Zara to Starbucks to, you know, various other sort of well-known brands, uh, you know, things like Pull and Bear, for example, all the Inditex brands they, they, they run. Uh, and they, they generally occupy 30 to 40% of any major mall with their brands. Um, and they have so good department store and Marks and Spencer and, and you know a wide range of, of very well known high street brands. And this is this is a, this is why no matter what shopping mall you go to in Jakarta, you see the same stores. You do. I mean, you know, it, it, you know, it makes it rather monotonous from my perspective. But, but uh, yeah, no, that's right. I mean, all the malls have the same brands, but it's quite a wide range, actually. I mean, I think people are quite often surprised about how many how many European brands, for example, are, are uh, um, available in in uh, Indonesia. Um, so it's not, you know, it's, it's in some ways I, I find it more interesting than than uh, um, than Singapore as a place to go to a mall. Um, and the malls are actually of very high quality. Um, but yes, I mean, what, what you were saying about uh, MAPI shifting online, I mean, prior to COVID, um, I think they were, they were doing about one, one or, or maybe 2% of sales were online. Um, but when COVID sort of struck Indonesia, they were very fast to, to push out uh, their, their online presence, basically using their, their, uh, um, their MAPI membership base, which is about three points and so on. So they, they shifted online very, very quickly. And, um, you know, apart from fashion brands, they also, a large portion of their business comes from, uh, um, from sportswear, you know, shoes and, and uh, athletic uh, clothing and casual athletic clothing and so on. Uh, they have something called Sports Station and, and Planet Sports, which have all sorts of, you know, Adidas and Nike and and Reebok and all those brands. So, you know, that's, that's also been a very strong driver for, for sales because I think people are becoming, funny enough, have become much more health conscious as a result of, of, of COVID. So, you know, sales of athletic clothing have actually been quite strong. Uh, sales of bicycles have been incredibly strong. Um, so, you know, they, they, that's kind of, uh, and the other sectors which have benefited from that actually are, are things like pharmaceuticals. Uh, and it's more your kind of uh, generic kind of uh, uh, vitamins and, and health drinks and, uh, you know, local Jamu type drinks, which is a kind of, uh, um, you know, local medicine. People are trying to build up their immune systems, huh? Well, no, exactly. that's exactly right. I mean, I think people are much more, much more uh, um, focused on their health as a result of the pandemic. So, Angus, let me ask you: um, this uh, e-commerce trend is it penetrating into the second and third tier cities as well? It is. I mean, and you know, there's a big effort by certain players. There's one big e-commerce player named uh, Bukalapak, which uh, is is very focused on uh, providing basically fulfillment services and, and uh, sourcing of goods for the Warungs. You know, Warungs are basically small. 
uh, mum and pop shops you have in in, in on uh, you know in every every street in Indonesia basically they're, they're known as in, within general trade rather than modern trade. So modern trade are things like mini markets and supermarkets and hypermarkets, but the general trade and warungs are part of a uh, you know a, a much more widespread uh, than uh, than modern trade. Uh, probably account for about sixty percent of the retail market. And these e-commerce players like Bukalapak are actually signing up warungs. Bukalapak has thirteen and a half million warungs. Uh, who are signed signed on to Bukalapak to um, source goods uh, and then sell them on, and and what it's doing is it's cutting out the middleman. So you know, so they're they're getting they're getting cheaper goods, and and uh, you know, it's all done on apps. It's it's a kind of a, they've got a smartphone, and and they're using that to to source you know lower price goods. So it's positive for the Warung owner. Uh, obviously, it's a it's a great market for for Bukalapak. Um, but you know, that, so that that's happening, and, and other players such as Shopee. Uh, um, and uh, Tokopedia uh, also have their own kind of uh, um, you know system to 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 support Warungs. And apart from anything else, you know they 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 are supporting your kind of small business who's looking to sell the products online. Um, so you know, it's it's a, it's a mixture of you know supporting the Warung to allow them to source cheap goods, and then small uh, sort of entrepreneurial businesses allowing them to sell their goods to to other you know to to consumers online. Um, so it's it's. It, Logistically, this is working so far. These uh, watering owners have enough connectivity and uh, wherewithal to make use of the app. Uh, yes, it seems seems to be working pretty well. And, and you know, the fact is that most of the e-commerce players are trying to get into that space. And, and the other thing which is happening is that you know there's a, there's a financial element to it. So you know, the e-commerce players will generally have some form of digital payments system, and they they're using that as well as a means to transact goods. Um, so you know they, they can they can top these uh, digital payment systems like Ovo and and GoPay uh, and Dana uh, to name three of them. They, they basically uh, and Shopee Pay also is another one. So basically they're using these these as a conduit for uh, small businesses, one for consumers to pay for things, uh, but also for for um, you know, for some of the merchants to, to pay for goods as well. Uh, and they're also teaming up. For example, Bukalapak is teaming up with BRI, which is the uh, Bank Rakyat Indonesia, which is the the largest bank in Indonesia, uh, which is very focused on micro lending, so lending to the, the or even even you know ultra micro micro lending, so selling, so lending to the you know the man in the in the in the in the wet market selling vegetables or selling you know dry goods within a you know a wet market, which is kind of a very very sort of a, a traditional market in Indonesia, where you know have all sorts of people selling chickens and and meat and and vegetables and and you know everything you can think of. Uh, but you know, very low end. Um, so they're, 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 you know, that that's kind of um, providing finance for these people as well, so they can take. Yeah, that's the BRI uh, unit DESA system, which is uh, legendary. I uh, this is going to be amazing, Angus. I uh, that was the topic of my college thesis in uh, 1993 was the unit DESA system. So it it goes back a ways. Yeah, it was uh, set up in the 1970s. They, they took over the BMAS rice intensification program. This this rice intensification program had had a physical infrastructure nationwide, but they intensified the rice. It was a one-off shift to a new variety of uh, rice seeds. And so they didn't need these um, uh, regional offices anymore. So they gave them to BRI to use as small-scale banking offices. And to this day, it's still running and they have a massive uh, profitability in the, the main um, engine is it's a secure place for people in rural areas to save their money. So they get savings very inexpensively. So that's a great fit for, for an e-commerce player because they've got this uh, physical uh, branch network in, in relatively remote places. And plus, they've got this uh, trustworthy uh, brand name. 
Exactly. I mean, I think that's that, that that's key. I mean, I've I've actually I've visited you know a number of, of BRI branches in in wet markets, and and uh, you know we've gone round and chatted to the the you know the traders and the markets and so on, and and, and watched how it all works. And it's uh, you know it's it's pretty efficient. And um, you know if they take out a loan, you know they, they get to know the branch manager very well. So you know he'll come around and collect the payments from all the different traders. They like it done that way rather than having them having to remember. And you know there's a lot of kind of uh, peer pressure not to default on a loan. You know, because obviously you're in a market and everyone knows what's happening. Um, so they, they have very low non-performing loans, BRI, which is maybe surprising to some people given you're catering for, for a kind of, you know, very low level customer. So the, the, the attitude or the, the skepticism about e-commerce in Indonesia sometimes is that it's going to enrich the tycoons, but just squeeze margins for everybody else and therefore not really help alleviate poverty or not really help grow incomes because the tech business and the digitization and the e-commerce is not really adding value or, or creating anything. Uh, what do you say about that? Because what it sounds like from what you described, it actually might actually bring costs down for a lot of key players by squeezing out middlemen. And so maybe it can free up some uh, disposable income and, and help people's margins. No, I, I, I would say that the, the opposite is true. I mean, I think, you know, uh, everything from... Think about it, you know, even Gojek. Gojek is basically a, a ride-hailing company. It started with uh, uh, motorbikes. You know, your Ojek driver used to be a guy who stood under a tree and uh, with an Ojek sign, and if you wanted to go somewhere, you stopped and talked to him, and he'd take you there for a negotiated fee. Now, that's moved online, and Gojek basically now uh, um, employ uh, around two, 2 million drivers. I think, you know, you've got those 2 million drivers who are now only earning a decent wage. I mean, I think they earn well above the minimum wage in, in larger cities. Uh, in fact, probably across the board. Um, and, you know, there's, there's obviously a promotional element to that as well. They're, they're supporting, the, you know, they all, a lot of them have families, so they're supporting their families. So that's the value added. The e-commerce is, a lot of it is uh, what we call C to C. So it's consumer to consumer. So the people who are selling in a small way uh, are, are selling, you know, clothing or, or uh, you know, local goods or, you know, dried foods or whatever it is, many different things. They're effectively using, you know, Tokopedia or, or Shopee or as a, as a conduit for their business, um, and they're doing it. They're doing it off their smartphone. What has really enabled or allowed all this to happen is is the penetration of low cost Chinese smartphones in Indonesia. So you've got now smartphone penetration is now probably about seventy percent overall uh, and growing very quickly still. And you can buy a, you know, you can buy a, a Chinese smartphone for as little as a million rupiah. Uh, which is you know seventy dollars, so it's pretty, it's quite accessible um, for for most people to have a, a smartphone if they've got a small business. So you know the, the contribution to the to the um, the overall economy is actually is quite large from e commerce, and it's a big enabler you know for small businesses. Um, and uh, you know as a result, it's, it's you know the the government is very behind it. In fact, Gojek, one of Gojek's founders, has, has now become a government minister. Probably for that very reason, you know, he's left the corporate world to join the government because the government see that there's huge value in in, in continuing to promote uh, uh, e-commerce because it's effectively, you know, democratizing commerce uh, and allow, allowing the small man to succeed. You know, he doesn't have to have a shop. You know, he can do it from his smartphone. He can he can produce food from home and and advertise on on uh, uh, you know on on Go Food. And you know he'll he'll be he'll be producing food in his in his own house, and you'll be buying it online, and and uh, you know everybody's happy effectively. So this uh, this this model then is not uh, merely um, whereby an e-commerce website offers consumers products brought in from abroad or manufactured by a few big corporations in Jakarta. 
Instead, it's actually like a, a virtual kiosk, which is, I guess, the, what Bukalapak is originally meant to be. So there, there, there is there, there is an element of sourcing overseas because, you know, there are players like you know, Tencent and, and uh, Alibaba from China, whatever, have, have, uh, have stakes in some of these uh, e-commerce players. But the majority of the goods are locally sourced goods. Um, and you, you can source, you know, certain products from overseas, but you know, it, it, it tends to be there's more. It's more local, local transactions uh, um, rather than than uh, you know buying buying goods from overseas. I mean, some of the you know a lot of these players like Lazada and Shopee and so on, they have what they call uh, an online mall. So in the, those online malls uh, will have you know foreign brands you know within that mall. But but Tokopedia, for example, does also has that. Um, but you know, majority of their business is still very much locally, local entrepreneurs advertising products on the on the on the on the site and selling selling that way. So, I mean, it, there's a portion of regional and, and offshore sourcing, but you know, not not a massive amount. I think a lot of it is enabling local businesses. Okay, and then the other problem with this uh, dynamic in some countries is that one player just becomes dominant and has an unhealthy uh, level of control over the market. But I guess Indonesia has still got quite a lot of competition in the e-commerce space. And then you, you were mentioning in one of your notes about how uh, Grab may actually uh, line up with Bukalapak and uh, pose some rivalry to uh, Gojek's uh, alliance with Tokopedia. Well, that's right. I mean, I, that, that, that's, that, that's purely, you know, my, my view. Um, you, know, that, you know, sort of Grab is, it competes directly with, with Gojek uh, and, in fact, tried to merge with Gojek. Previously, Grab is a Singapore-based, but you know, origin Malaysia, uh, and it's it's the largest ride-hailing company in Southeast Asia. Uh, but in Indonesia, Gojek is the is is the largest player, so they compete directly with Gojek, and they were looking to 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 merge with Gojek, but that, that, that I don't think that was ever going to going to work because they wanted control, and and uh, yeah, I think it would have been highly destructive. You know, lots of jobs lost and so on. Um, so, but what the, what's happening now is that uh, you know Gojek is merging with Tokopedia, so it will have a, an e-commerce arm to it. Grab is 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 slightly behind the curve on this. So, uh, my view is they've taken a stake in in Bukalapak's uh, one of Bukalapak's major shareholders called MTech Group. They've taken a four percent stake in MTech Group. So, you know, what what, what happens next really is is, and I'm suggesting that it could potentially involve some form of collaboration with Bukalapak. Uh, on e-commerce, uh, and it could also potentially involve, you know, collaboration on digital payments. With Dana being one of the digital payments players, and Ovo being one which Grab has a stake in. So, it, you know, there are a number of different ways it could go. But you know, there's um, I've called it the um, Indonesian digital game of thrones as a title because uh, that's exactly what's happening. There's a lot. There's kind of a land grab uh, within the digital ecosystem. You know, everyone's trying to get a piece of of, of different segments. So. You know, buying into small banks, for example, so to provide you know banking services for all your e-commerce clients and potentially your customers. You know, so there's a, a whole lot of stuff going on, which is, makes it actually a pretty interesting ecosystem. And you know, there, there, there are lots of competitors. So it's very competitive. It's not dominated by any one player. Shopee has done very, very well in in moving into the number one spot, but it's very closely followed by Tokopedia and, and Lazada and Bukalapak. So they're kind of all fighting out for turf war, turf uh, um, space in different areas. So you know, Shopee's very good with women. Lazada's wow. very good with men because they sell lots of electronics. Um, you know, they sort of they all have their various different niches, but um, you know, and they're all going in slightly different directions. But you know, I think the one area which they're all trying to grab is or get a piece of is is uh, um, the whole kind of uh, um, digital finance space, uh, which kind of. Well, I think you know that that that's an area where they could potentially make quite large returns. 
um, and uh, you know might move them towards profitability more quickly. Yeah, because that's where the profits actually reside, right? Um, no one, no one's making profits at the moment. Although you know, companies like MTech um, does make money um, because they have a, a, a profitable media arm. Um, they have a stake in Bukalapak. Um, so the media arm is is uh, called uh, SDMA, uh, which has you know two of the biggest TV stations, SCTV and, and uh, IndoCR. So they have they have lots of advertising revenues and and from from free to air TV. So you know that provides lots of cash flow for for um, uh, for the group. Um, so you know MTech is actually profitable, but you know, it's very highly valued uh, as a result, and uh, you know it's sort of trading on on multiples of sales rather than profits. So you know, it's, it's sort of you know, it's moved up into a into a kind of different uh, a different sphere in terms of valuations. Um, more kind of more. well, I guess I guess these companies, yeah, these companies are basically still embryonic, technically, uh, given the the scale and the potential scale that they can reach. So um, they're they're loss making and they're dependent on uh, inflows of uh, investor capital. And, and that's been really big in, in past years, billions of dollars a year going into Indonesia, into the tech sector. Uh, has that been happening straight through the pandemic? Um, yes, it has. I mean, you know, you've, you've seen, you know, continuing investments into companies like uh, Gojek and uh, uh, into companies like Bukalapak, um, you know, throughout the pandemic. So, you know, there's been you know, quite a lot of activity there. And, and um, in fact, you know, we, we're now seeing Grab looking to list in New York through what they call a SPAC, which is a, a special purpose acquisition company, um, which would value Grab uh, about forty billion dollars. So it's, it's pretty, you know, the, the last valuation of the company is around sixteen. Um, so they're expecting to get a very high valuation through listing in in New York. Close on the heels of, of Grab, uh, Gojek and Topedia, uh, once their merger is complete, will also look to list, uh, and the, the valuations for for that combined entity would, are also uh, said to be around $40 billion. So, you know, the, 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 the valuations are getting bigger and bigger and, and money is still coming in. So there's new fresh funds being being put to work, you know, at all these companies. Uh, that pandemic really hasn't, because of the, the fact that e-commerce sales have accelerated actually has underpinned a more positive view on, on uh, you know, on these digital companies. Uh, okay. But you uh, mentioned that you anticipate those listings probably happening only in New York because of the higher valuations, not in Jakarta? Well, I, I, I think, well, Grab is slightly different because it's, a, it's you know, it's a, it's a Singapore-based and, uh, and uh, you know, Malaysian origin and so on. But uh, the Jakarta, I think that the, the com- companies like Gojek and Jokopedia are very likely to have what you call a dual listing. So they'll have a listing in, in Jakarta and they'll also have a listing in New York. The point is, you know, having having a listing in New York gives them access to to you know kind of a, an investor base which is very focused on tech and prepared to pay more for it. Um, and you know, when you've got a high growth you know markets in Southeast Asia, then you know that, that, that that's an area which I think would attract quite a lot of attention. So I think there's a, there's a bit of pressure probably from the government and from the Indonesian Stock Exchange to list in in Indonesia as well as in New York, and it would be very positive for the, the Indonesian stock market to have. You know, a Gojek Tokopedia listed and a Bukalapak listed, and and uh, potentially some others like Traveloka, the biggest travel company. So, you know, that I think there's there's a, there's a good chance there'll be there'll be a, a number of dual listings. Because right now the stock market itself does not actually have a lot of tech sector plays uh, beyond MTech and uh, maybe a few others. No, it doesn't. It's they're, they're generally relatively relatively uh, um, small. I mean, MTech is is an exception. Um, you know, there, there are some kind of IT 
uh, um, enablers like uh, Metro Data, but it's quite small. You know, they, they basically provide a lot of hardware to support the whole tech sector. Um, you know, you've got a company called Asa, uh, which is uh, a uh, effectively a car leasing company, which is in going in much more into logistics and the last mile. And there's, you know, there's quite a lot of investor attention on some of these these companies. But no, the tech sector is very poorly represented at the moment in in uh, in Indonesia on the market. Right. Yeah. Well. Yeah. That's always been uh, one of the problems with the uh, Indonesian stock exchange. Uh, it's never been fully representative of the uh, national economy. A lot of the best players yeah, aren't aren't actually in it. Well, that's right. So there's a, there's a measure which a lot of uh, investors use, which is market cap to GDP. Mm. Uh, and the the, the market, so the total value of the whole stock market in Indonesia versus the total value of GDP. And I think I'm right in saying Indonesia is probably now about 70%. Um, so the market cap is about 70% of GDP. But if you looked at a, a country like Thailand, it's, it's um, I mean, it was certainly well above 100%. Um, and you look at Singapore, it's probably, you know, above 200%. Uh, or Hong Kong, for example, but they're, maybe they're slightly different, being city states. But I mean, Indonesia is, is not well represented, and that's partly because you know you don't have listings of things like the state electricity company. You know, you don't have the state oil company. You know, PLN or Petronas. You, you don't. They're not listed. So Pertamina. So you're not. You're not, They're not listed in Indonesia. So you know that's a gap. You know, if they were listed, then the market, the market cap of the whole market would be bigger. Yeah, so on the one hand, you've got uh, major state entities that are practically an arm of the government rather than really a genuine commercial entity. And then on the other hand, you've got a lot of uh, small holding agricultural uh, operators, you know, small farmers. So uh, a lot of that's, that accounts for a lot of the GDP, too. Exactly. So a lot of small businesses and, and uh, you know, as, as you say, a lot of uh, very inefficient, you know, sort of government linked companies. I, w- I would say that, you know, there, there are exceptions to that. I mean, I think the Indonesian state owned banks are actually pretty efficient and well run. Um, and, you know, Telcom Indonesia is not is a, the, the biggest mobile operator under Telcom Cell. Yeah, that's quite a well run company. So I wouldn't say that, you know, the SOEs that are listed in, in uh, Indonesia are all bad. Some of them are very, very high quality and provide you know, pretty decent returns. Uh, even though this, you know, Semen Grisic, which is a, a, a state-owned cement company, is, is pretty efficient. Um, so, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be too disparaging about the quality of, of uh, um, some of the listed uh, Indonesian state-owned enterprises. But the, the, the ones which are not listed are, are a bit less you know, less efficient and, and uh, uh, you know, there's a reason for them not being listed at the moment. Yeah, exactly. That's all, That was always the uh, dichotomy. The, the SOEs that listed faced pressure to perform commercially, whereas the ones that remained unlisted were either doing so for some reason, um, i.e. They, they didn't want to be subject to scrutiny, or they were, they were just uh, you know, so poorly performing that they, they couldn't uh, entertain a listing. Although I guess there, there are a couple of duds, though, right, that, that did list. Um, Krakatoa Steel, and um, then one that I guess has just been really unlucky with the pandemic is Garuda. Well, I mean, I, that, that's right. I mean, I think, uh, um, I mean, you know, even prior to the, the pandemic, you know, Garuda was, was always, a, you know, slightly higher risk bet. Despite the fact that you know the traffic numbers from Indonesia is, uh, are growing very very quickly, so people are you know prior to the pandemic, you know travel was very very was growing very very quickly, um, and yeah, Traveloka was was doing incredibly well. Hmm. Um, and but the problem with Garuda is it, 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 it has been slightly poorly managed. You know they never hedged their their um, you know oil exposure or the aircraft fuel exposure, so 
they they were often you know affected by that. You know, they they had very poor hedging policies on fuel, um, so profitability was always an issue with with Garuda. Um, and uh, you know, Krakatoa Steel again, you know, it, you know, just not very well run company, despite the fact that you know there's a steel shortage in, in Indonesia. Hmm. And then it was another thing that held back the market for a long time, always has, is uh, governance uh, issues. In uh, 2019, sensationally, there was the uh, GWAS Raya uh, disclosure of uh, losses uh, exceeding 20 trillion rupiah. And then uh, last year, uh, disclosure of the uh, Asabri case with losses also exceeding 20 trillion rupiah. So these are two uh, state-owned entities, one a uh, insurance company, one a uh, military pension fund that were uh, basically running like Ponzi schemes and and the losses exceed those of the uh, you know the billion dollar whale in neighboring Malaysia, the uh, one Malaysia Brahad. So what, how, how has that affected uh, the, the capital markets? Well, I mean, it, it, it did at the time it had a, uh, you know, a, a big impact on the market, but it, it, it tended to be more focused um, on, uh, you know, the, 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 the smaller companies within the market where they're highly, high, highly speculative, uh, very volatile uh, um, and quite liquid companies where you saw some, you know, massive, you know, they basically, the, the, the shares were, were ramped up by the fund and, and um, you know, I, I'm not sure who was actually profiting from that. Um, but you know there, there was there was a lot of kind of uh, um, market manipulation uh, in small cap stocks. They didn't really have huge exposure to your larger parts of the index. You know the sort of bigger banks and Astra and and Telcom and so on. So it had a huge impact on anything small cap. Despite it didn't matter whether it was a great quality company and and uh, you know had great governance. It was small cap, so it was presumed that that Jewish Raya, for example, was was involved. So it actually had a, a very a big dampening effect on a lot of small cap stocks. But I think you know through, now that those two issues have been effectively uh, going through a kind of re, gone through a restructuring, slightly been sort of uh, uh, you know behind the market uh, in terms of market sentiment. And you know you, you're now seeing you know a lot more activity by uh, small retail investors in the Indonesian market, which, which has meant that a lot of these small cap stocks. Uh, have done very very well. Um, so you know, the, the, so basically, the market has shaken off. You know, the, the, the overhang of all those, uh, you know, the Jewish Raya case and the Abu Abu case. So you know, they, those two issues are now, I think, put, being put behind. And I think the the you know the the, the regulator is, is quite focused on making sure that doesn't happen again. Uh, that was my question. Yeah, because basically, what they were doing, I think, was uh, you know, taking in the case of Jewish Raya, the the player there was uh, Benny Chokro, among a few others, and they were. Uh, conspiring with the company's management to take policyholders' money and uh, embezzle it, but to hide their tracks, I think that they invested in these very illiquid small cap stocks, many of which they themselves controlled personally, and they had deliberately inflated the share value or the share price on very thin trading uh, to make it look as if Jiwasraya's investment in that company was worth a lot of money. When in fact the share price was artificial, and so that that should have been blatantly illegal, right? When you're you're, you're ramping stock prices, basically, right? Well, I mean, it, it, well, it is blatantly illegal. You know, I mean, it's kind of stock manipulation, which is kind of you know not not uh, not condoned by anyone, but and certainly not condoned by the OJK. So you know, I think you know there, there is a probably a, a higher focus on on. Uh, uh, or an intense, more intense focus on making sure that doesn't happen again. So, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think, you know, Indonesian market has, has, to some extent, has been supported by, um, you know, the, the increase in retail activity because foreigners have been big net sellers of the market. You know, money has, has shifted out of, of Indonesia uh, due to the pandemic. 
uh, and hasn't really you know, returned. It's returned to some extent, but I think that that's actually why there's a lot of upside for the Indonesian market because the foreign investor has not has not really come back in a big way. Yeah, the index the index really hasn't done anything since uh, I think 2018. Exactly. So it's been it's been pretty flat. But you know, there are areas where you know, a lot of money has been made. You know, in in anything which is slightly tech related, uh, and there are not many of those. But yeah, I mean, there's obviously the, there's been a lot of question marks over, you know, non-performing loans in the banking sector and, and uh, you know, slow, very slow performance, for example, from, from car sales, which affect uh, Astra, uh, which distributes uh, Toyota and, and Daihatsu vehicles. Uh, but now that, that suddenly has, has seen a huge recovery because the government has put through a policy to allow zero down payments on, on, uh, on motor vehicles. Uh, and actually, they're also are now allowing 100% mortgages. But on the, on, on the motor vehicles, they've also got rid of luxury tax for vehicles under 1500 cc's as a result in march uh, when the new policy came in car sales went up 70 percent month on month yeah that's the kind of artificial that's kind of artificial though you know that's just bringing future sales forward well i mean it is to some extent but i mean i think you know the, the, there is much there is obviously increased demand as a result of, of uh, prices being you know 30 percent lower um so you know th- th- that policy has had a very immediate impact and we'll just have to watch what happens over the next few months and you know that that the initial cut in luxury tax lasts for three months and then they cut it by half for the next three months and you know they, they can change it at any point but the point is that you know the, the stimulus is having some positive impact on car sales yeah and how about the uh, consumer stocks are you seeing uh well, yeah what are the earnings from consumer stocks tell you about consumers well, interesting enough, we, we were talking about Mitrada Picasa a bit earlier, and, and you know, they, they, they released their results late last week. And, and effectively, in the fourth quarter, they turned back into profit, um, having you know, made losses for the previous two quarters. Um, so what they did is effectively, you know, they, they discounted and, and uh, uh, cleared any excess inventory during the, 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 the second and especially in the third quarter. And as a result, in the fourth quarter, you know, consumers spent, and, and they've gone online, obviously, so they've moved 10% of sales online. Uh, they've now started to sell a lot more more fully priced items. So they've become, gone back into a profitable situation. So, you know, I think, you know, retail is, it's starting to recover. I mean, you know, it's not, that's not across the board. I mean, Matahari department store, which is the biggest department store operator and caters for a much lower level consumer, they're doing much less well. I mean, their same store sales growth, which is a measure that commonly used, that, that that's down uh, still about 30% year on year. Um, so you're, you're not, they're, they're st- and they're still putting out, if you go and visit the Matahari department store, which I did last weekend it's pretty empty and there are an awful lot of discount signs across the place uh, you know it's uh, you know buy three get one free and 50 percent discount here and there and everywhere so you know it's it's um and they've closed i think they've announced they've closed uh, um th- they're closing a further 13 stores this year having closed about 15 last year so you know they're going through a big consolidation process um and uh, you know so i think the lower end consumer is is, is, is still obviously feeling the pinch um and you know this is some of the spending is going to dwindle now too right well that's right and you know the the other thing which is key in indonesia is is invest is is retail spending ahead of the ahead of ramadan you know labaran uh, which is likely to be i think relatively muted because they've announced uh, uh, you know another a ban on what they call mudik 
where people go back to their uh, back to their hometowns for for the holidays. So that's not happening this year, and as a result, you know there will be less kind of present giving and, and that kind of thing, and, and less money spent. So you know that that may also be a bit of a dampener for for some of the lower end players. But you know um, the recovery is definitely quite marked with with your kind of uh, you know middle class type uh, uh, operations like Mappy. All right. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, you mentioned uh, shopping uh, recently, and where you are, I wanted to ask you about uh, Bali uh, specifically because that's one province that has its uh, own very unique, special characteristics, uh, especially during this pandemic when tourism has uh, fallen by, I think, more than ninety percent. Uh, so, what's it? What's it like where you live, um, and uh, how are things still still grim for a lot of Balinese? Uh, yeah, I mean, the answer is yes, very grim. I mean, you know, obviously we, we, we employ a few people and, and you know, their, their families are, are, are effectively suffering. No, people haven't got jobs. Um, and Bali's are pretty resilient. So, you know, they, they're sort of, um, uh, you know, people have gone back to kind of growing vegetables and seaweed farming has come back in. You know, so effectively they're doing... They're doing stuff which, which uh, um, you know, they had done probably previously um, and isn't, isn't, isn't uh, an option currently. Although you see you know, a bit of a pickup in, in domestic tourists, but you know, domestic tourists are probably only 20 to 30 percent of, of visitors in Bali normally. So, and certain areas, I mean, Kuta, which is the, the sort of mass tourism uh, destination, is like a ghost town. I mean, I reckon you know, 90 percent of businesses are closed. Um, and, uh, you know, they've even shot McDonald's in Kuta. Um, and, and, you know, Seminyak, which is a bit more kind of slightly higher end, is also completely dead. Uh, the only places which are, are seeing a bit more activity are uh, places like Changu. Um, but generally, you know, the whole island is is, is under pressure. I mean, I climbed uh, Mount Agung last weekend, which is a uh, you know biggest volcano here, and, and the guide was telling me he used to do you know four trips uh, a week up Agung, and he's now doing uh, one a month if he's lucky. And that's only been over the last three months. You know, four trips uh, a week up Agung, and he's now doing uh, one a month if he's lucky. And that's only been over the last three months. And there's no real so on a from a sort of uh, you know market perspective i had a a call with with bfi which is one of the biggest multi-finance companies you know are lending for mainly for used cars and, and motorcycles um they said that bali used to be the number one market for them in terms of you know they never had any non-performing loans and never had any problems but uh, now unfortunately what's happened is that no one have got jobs so they're having to restructure their loans and it's a much more difficult situation so you know they're, they're holding back on extending any new credit because you know the economy is is still in such a, a poor state yeah and um yeah i remember originally it was the thought was that okay this is a downturn it's going to hit hard but it's going to pass and then bali's going to bounce back um but then the pandemic just lingered and then there were expectations that maybe there could be a travel bubble between bali and certain other destinations uh in june but now that's not looking likely because i guess i guess there's there's still pretty substantial case rates in bali right now is that right I don't get the impression that the case rates are particularly bad. I mean, you, you, you're definitely seeing uh, um, vaccinations being rolled out. Uh, in fact, I mean, I've already had one vaccination here, uh, AstraZeneca. So it, it is, it is, you know, vaccinations are happening. Cases in Bali don't seem to be as nearly as bad as they are in Jakarta. But even Jakarta, and we get the daily numbers of, of uh, if you think Jakarta, I think the daily numbers are around 5,000 people. When in India, you've got 350,000 in one day. Um, it slightly pales into insignificance. I mean, given the, the size of the Indonesian population. Now, you may put that down to testing, but, you know, there's a fair amount of testing going on. Um, so I wouldn't be overly pessimistic from uh, um, the point of view of COVID at this point. 
But, you know, I mean, travel bubbles are difficult because even in Thailand, where they've started to do that in a very incremental way, you're not attracting huge numbers. And, you know, sort of as, as long as you've got you know, relatively long periods of, of quarantine still, it becomes it's still relatively difficult to see any any large numbers of, of tourists coming back. Hmm. OK, well, thank you so much, Angus. That was all uh, very insightful, very helpful. And uh, we'll, we're going to have to bring you back on the podcast again next time. Great. Well, I hope that was uh, provided some, some added value. And yeah, thank you very much for, uh, um, for having me on. Yeah. Okay. That was uh, Angus McIntosh from Cross ASEAN Research. And uh, this was the uh, Reformacy Dispatch podcast from Kevin O'Rourke at Reformacy Weekly. And that's the pod. Thanks to Angus McIntosh of Cross ASEAN Research. Our producer is Stephen Handoko. Editing by Aditya Akbar. Music by the Blue Dot Sessions. As always, you can contact us over Instagram at onthelevel underscore media. If you're listening to us through a podcast app, please hit subscribe and rate us. It helps. This podcast is a production of On The Level Media. I'm Jeff Hutton. Bye for now.